Hey there, friends. Pastor Paul Carter here from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Aurelia and the host of the Into the Word podcast, here with another fabulous panel for our weekly discussion known as Going Deeper. Uh, here today with me, I've got my old friend, Pastor Mark Bertrand. Great to have you back with us. We've got Dr. Jody Cross from just down the road in Barrie, and also Pastor Stephen Bray from St. John's, Newfoundland. So thank you so much for being with us this week. I really appreciate it. Great to be here again. Good to be here. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Paul. All right, well, let's jump right into it. Uh, as always, I've found these narratives in Genesis to be absolutely fabulous. Uh, you know, there's so much material here. There's so much we could, we could talk about. I've tried to pick out a few of the gems. Uh, over the last seven days uh, of our Bible readings, we've been looking at the story of Jacob. And uh, as we talked last week, the story of Jacob and Esau in terms of their birth and their early childhood narratives, that is picked up in the, in the New Testament and used as kind of an illustration in advance of the doctrine of election. So we had a great conversation last week out of Romans 9, reflecting uh, backwards. And, and then there's another story this week that I want to zoom in on, uh, this one in Genesis 32. And it is, of course, the other classic Jacob story, the story of Jacob wrestling with the angel or wrestling with God or whoever that that was. You remember the story? Jacob is is uh, fretting now. This is really kind of like the, the second bookend of the Jacob story. He's fretting now his uh, in coming encounter with brother Esau. Of course, he's he cheated Esau. He lied to Esau. He stole from Esau. And and now he's gone away. He's grown up. He's got married. He's got kids. He's coming home. And uh, Esau's waiting for him with 400 trained men. And so he's, he's nervous about that. He organizes his little caravan. He's got everybody set up. He's figured out a plan, Jacob the schemer, right? He's got a little plan for mollifying brother Esau. But at the end of the day, he's not certain of his plan. And, and so that night he's, he's agonizing, he's stewing, uh, and he's all alone. And, and, and this character shows up and wrestles with Jacob. And of course, that becomes a metaphor, it becomes a, a lens and another one of these illustrations in advance for us to think about our relationship with God, to be Israel. Jacob's name is changed to Israel because he wrestles with God. So to be a Christian, to be a person of faith fundamentally is to be locked in this death grip, this wrestle with God. That, that becomes an important bit of Christian imagery. So Mark, as your first duty back uh, on the panel, why don't you walk us through the story? Tell us what it meant. Help us understand some of the, some of the interesting features of the story, but then also unpack this, this symbol, this, this lens, this illustration in advance, as it were, for the entire Christian life. I continually contend that this moment at the Jabbok is the moment, if we use New Testament language of regeneration or conversion for Jacob, he knows all about God, but all the way through the story up to now at Bethel, in Haran, with Laban, we see Jacob the schemer, Jacob the cheater, Jacob a mighty man, there's a number of mighty feats where physically he's strong, he seems confident in himself. The only time he ever talks about God, his wife, Rachel, says, give me children or I'll die. And he says, am I God? You know, um, it, and at this point, we see there's a change. And if you track with this in your Bible, you'll see Jacob is different mm -hmm. after this point. He's not flawless, but there's a completely different aspect to him. Um, so what's interesting is it, there's a debate. Who does he wrestle Um I, I believe he wrestles the Lord. It's the angel of the Lord, but angel of the Lord and the Lord are often, but not always synonymous 
in scripture. But I, I think to the point of your question, the, the wrestling, the prevailing, his name has changed from Jacob to Israel because he, he prevails with God. And I think one of the most important things that we can see there is he doesn't beat God. He doesn't defeat God. He doesn't lay hold of God and drag him down from the heavens. It's God who brings about this event. It's God who precipitates it. It's God who falls upon him. It's the Lord who wrestles with him all through the night. And the prevailing is not a prevailing in his strength. Um, how many of you guys wrestled in high school? Am I the only guy that had to wrestle in high school? Yeah. And I was the big guy. So I always, I was the unlimited category. I wasn't really strong, but I had to wrestle like the two. Unlimited. I didn't get to that weight class. But here's the thing is you, you can't wrestle with a dislocated hip. Yeah. And Jacob at the moment, as the dawn is coming, the intruder, the invader reaches down, dislocates his hip with a single touch, probably cripples him for life. Jacob is left clinging and it's at that point that he prevails. It's at that point that he says, I, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the Lord says to him, what is your name? And at that point, that's the moment of confession. He has to own up to who he is. I'm Jacob. I'm the cheater. I'm the schemer. I'm the deceiver. And it's at that point, a point of confession and faith and clinging to the Lord, that his name becomes Israel. And, uh, you know, he limps away from the Jabbok from the place that he calls Peniel, but he limps away a totally different man. And I would say a converted man, a man who has come to know the Lord. Mm-hmm. That's good. And I'm, one of the things I love about that story is that God condescends to, to match strength with mm-hmm. Jacob, right? And mm-hmm. You just kind of reminded that these trials that God throws into our lives are not to crush us. They're not to kill us, right? But they are to stir up and stimulate faith in us. So what would, what, I mean, how, how would you suggest uh, whether a preacher is going to use this or, um, or someone's just wants to put this story in their tool belt in terms of ways to un- unpack the Christian life uh, for friends and relatives? Would you say this is an illustration of conversion only, or would you say it's just, it's just an illustration of what it means to walk with God? Yeah, I think in, in the story of, of Jacob, this serves as the moment of his conversion. And I'm always speaking to preachers. I'm always cautious with Old Testament narrative to spirit, not to want to spiritualize right away. I mean, the mm-hmm. story is primarily the story of God and God working with his people. But I do think that what we get out of this story is that this is how God works in Jacob's life. And this also, I think, matches how God uh, conducts himself often in our lives, that it mm-hmm. is not uncommon that he lays hold on us and that yeah. he uh, comes in such a way that that we are caused to cling, caused to 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 cry out to him. I cannot let you yeah. go unless you bless me. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, I, I think that's why we talk about what it meant and what it means. Or I guess F.F. Oh. F. Bruce talks about the primary meaning of a text and the plenary meaning. I mean, both. Um, you can believe that this is this is a real story. It really happened. Meaning, it's not. It wasn't fashioned later to make some spiritual point. It really happened right? Jacob really wrestled with an angel. This was an important story, but in the providence of God, it, it, it's preserved, you know, as Paul would say in first Corinthians 10, because it teaches us something too. And so we, you know, we can learn that God matches strength. With us. He, he, he brings force to bear on us in order to, to break us. And, uh, you know, we often talk about, 
God's people walk with a limp, right? I mean, those are just little little expressions that come out of this this little narrative. God has a way of humbling us. God has a way of pressing on us to to stir up faith. Yeah. Anybody else want to jump in on that? And it's a beloved story, obviously. This was a, a story twenty years in the making, and uh, I see the patience of God in this. You know, God God is one who waited a long time for for Jacob's. Uh, running and his scheming and his deceiving to come to an end and to come to an end of himself. And uh, it sure is great as you think in the scriptures about how God chases people and, yeah. Uh, yeah. and he nails them down. I think of Adam, right? He, he finds Adam in his sin and calls out to him. He goes after the lost sheep. He goes after um, Saul on the road to Damascus. And, and I love how God goes and finds people who are trying to run. And yeah. he, he pins them to the ground in a sense with no way out. And obviously God could have taken, taken him out in a heartbeat, but he, God's patient. He's wrestling with them all night, right? Not that God couldn't have taken them, but um, he was just waiting for him to surrender. And yeah. um, I, I love the fact that, you know, we are wounded by God to be healed uh, in order to be surrendered. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. You see that in Hosea too. Yeah. One of the things I, lo I love about this is just the, who are you really fighting with peace? You know, like uh, uh, Jacob was preparing for a fight with Esau. That's, that's the context, right? And then all of a sudden he finds himself wrestling with God, which I think is, is a reminder of the fact that we often obsess over the immediate agent behind our troubles and we forget the ultimate author. I think this is God saying, listen, you've been spending your whole life worried about Laban, worrying about Esau. You need to worry about me, right? I'm the one you need to do business with. Yeah. Well, I want to hit, unless Stephen, unless you wanted to jump in then, I, I want to move forward to Genesis 37. No, just a, a little kind of modern historical thing in regards to the reliability and trustworthiness of scripture. I'm sure you guys know this, but even in Israel to this day, it's because of this event that Jews remove the sciatic nerve hmm. out of meat. Um, just to show again, the authenticity of scripture. Like this is something that happens to this very day in Jerusalem, in Israel. Hmm. Um, when you go to, when you do that. And so I, I just love little tidbits like that for the, yeah. the skeptic, the searcher, the, can I trust my Bible? Listen, guys, this, think about how old that story is. Yeah. It's an old, and yet, it's an old tradition, right? The yeah. current yeah. true you know, tradition. Yeah. And it's going to come up again later when we talk about Esther even. So, yeah. Yeah. Right on. Thanks. All right. Well, I want to move forward, uh, hit one more story in Genesis uh, before we move to our next column. But uh, in Genesis 37, we begin to get into the Joseph narrative. So, uh, you guys know this. Our, our first-time Bible readers uh, are probably figuring this out for themselves. Uh, the way that Genesis is put together, there's kind of 11 chapters that are sometimes called prehistory narrative. It doesn't mean they're not historical. It just means uh, the kind of the big big picture, as it were. Then it zooms in on the family of Abraham. You got a bunch of chapters that are really all about Abraham. And, uh, and then each generation has a, a focus. So there's the Isaac generation, which is, I think, the shortest in terms of word count. Then there are the Jacob narratives. Then you get into the Joseph narratives. And, and the Joseph narrative, other than the one very odd chapter about Judah, uh, basically takes us now to the, to the end of the book. So there's, there's the, the, the focus seems to zoom in on a particular aspect of the family line. And we're now into the Joseph narrative. So in, in uh, Genesis 37, uh, we, have, we meet this young guy, Joseph. He's, he's a son born to Jacob in his later years. Uh, once again, there's favoritism. This is, you know, again, this family of faith is not called the family of faith because they're awesome at the life of faith. Uh, they're called the family of faith because they, they're providentially used by God to illustrate faith. And um, 
so they're not great parents. And once again, we got Jacob showing overt favoritism to a, a child, just as his mother had done to him. And uh, so we've got some challenges there. But Joseph is the favored one. He's he's kind of the young, geeky accountant kid uh, who gets sent out to manage his older uh, older brothers. Uh, they're not keen on it. They resent him and uh, they hatch a scheme to get rid of him forever and uh, toss him down a pit. So uh, Jody, walk us through the story and then give us again the, the big picture theme. Yes, this really happened. Yeah, but the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, these stories were written down for a reason, and that is to, to bring instruction uh, to us upon whom the end of the ages has come. So tell us mm -hmm. what happened and then also tell us the enduring significance of this story for us as believers. Sure. Well, so we have uh, Genesis 37 to 50, as you've said, it's the, the story of, of Joseph and his brothers. And by the time we arrive here, there's a whole lot of dysfunction in his family tree, uh, a lot of family drama, favoritism, you said, you know, with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Rachel and Leah, there's rivalry and deceit everywhere. So that's the family he comes into. And um, he was son number 11. Um, his mom was Rachel, and he had 10, old, 10 older siblings, but uh, in father's eyes, he was number one, and that was a problem with his robe and his favoritism. So the brothers... Uh, will will any part of your presentation involve you singing uh, Donny Osmond songs? I'm just asking. Just asking on behalf of the listeners. You know what? I don't have my robe on right now. <laughs> <laughs> but I do remember Donny Osmond when I was a kid a little bit. But, but no, I don't have the song loaded up. All right. No, no. I just had to ask. Thankfully for everyone, myself included. Yeah. So yeah, he was, he was uh, son number one in his dad's eyes. And obviously the hatred of his brothers grew uh, the more that he, you know, was favored by his dad. And he had these dreams that lacking wisdom at a 17 year or 17 years of age, he, in his arrogance and his pride, and perhaps in his immaturity, he, he told them these dreams and the more he told them, the more they resented him. So we find the fact that dad is a little unwise too, uh, because um, he sends young or yeah, he sends his son to go hang out with the older brothers, which actually put him in a bit of a precarious situation. So dad didn't really know what he was doing, but he sends them to the wolves and they conspire and they, they want to kill him. Um, and they go to, they're in actually in Shechem, which in Genesis 34 is not a good place. All the things that happened with Dinah in that couple of chapters before. So they see the dreamer and they want to kill him. And uh, Reuben pleads for his uh, protection and probably Reuben's motives are less than ideal because he wants to get his favor restored as the firstborn. And then Judah schemes to maybe not kill him, but to uh, sell him. So he wants to make some money. So we see some pretty bad motives. And then we find that um, they take his coat, throw him in the pit, dip his robe in some blood and tell dad that he's been eaten by an animal. So interesting, you see the heartlessness of the brothers. Um, from there, he's sold uh, to some Ishmaelites and they head, head down to Egypt. And uh, he's now a slave, ends up in the house of, um, of the guard, the keeper of the guard. So um, obviously one of the big themes here, we know the end of the story. And uh, we do know from Genesis uh, 15, 13, that God had told Abraham that to a, a foreign people, they would be sent uh, mm -hmm. for 400 years. So this is God's way of fulfilling what he had promised to Abraham. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, when we look at the story, we don't always know what God is doing or why he's doing it or how he's going to bring it about, but he does. And um, Joseph obviously suffers a lot. And there's a, the road to the, the healing comes at a, a cost and it's in his life. But obviously we see redemption and reconciliation and provision, preserving the family uh, in famine. 
And at the end, uh, Genesis 50, 20, I know I'm jumping ahead, but this is sort of the equivalent of yeah. the Romans 8, 28. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what's now being done. So uh, God is, is showing his hand of providence, the human causes and the divine plan. Uh, God is in the midst of all of this, and he, he uses evil even to accomplish his good purposes. It's amazing. Uh, when you take the, the zoom out approach and you just look at the Joseph narrative as a whole, it, it is amazing how many similarities there are to the Esther narrative. Uh, Stephen, I know you're going to talk about that in a minute, but uh, it's remarkably similar story that, that in essence, uh, you know, God is, is working a plan here. The, the individual participants may not be aware of it, but uh, God is putting his people in the right place so they can speak at the right time. And, and uh, it, it's, even though, you know, Esther, if you think about Esther's story, I mean, there's, there's some real tragedy and injustice in, in her story. She's, she's basically kidnapped and forced into what we might even refer to as, you know, prostitution or something. It's, it's, a, it's a story of injustice. And, and yet it, it also ends up becoming the, the agency of salvation. And you look at Joseph, Joseph forced into slavery, and yet it, it's the means of salvation. And so, and it's amazing to see how many people God is saving through this awful story. Right. You, you talked about Reuben and Judah. Well, it, just like we can almost watch the conversion moment with Jacob in this in the story we talked about at wrestling at the Jabbok, you can watch these brothers being broken and and converted over the course of this story. By the end of it, mm -hmm. you know, Reuben and Judah are emerging as selfless men who would offer their lives for the sake of their brother. And they, you know, it's it's. It's quite remarkable what God's doing. You guys want to jump in and ruminate on the story a little bit? Yeah, I, I don't know. Are we going to come back and touch on this story next week, do you think, Paul? Yeah, or? we will, because we'll still be in it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. because I, I would just say to the Bible reader, one of the interesting little twists as you get into chapter 38, which is that anomaly chapter with yeah. uh, Judah and Tamar, uh, give attention to, in 37, um, what you read today, uh the, the brother's voice, they bring the robes of Joseph, and they say to him, uh, to, to, to Jacob, this we found, please identify, this is verse 32, this we found, please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. Um, there's a very interesting uh, mirror that comes up in the Judah and Tamar story, when, when Tamar is being brought out to be burned, um, she says almost identical words in the next chapter in verse 25, and she said, please identify whose are these, the signet cord and the staff. So I would say to the Bible reader, uh, as you're hearing the Joseph story, there goes my chair, see you guys. Um, uh, as you're reading the Joseph story, uh, you know, highlight Judah and watch what is happening with Judah because yeah. that story becomes a, a big turning point in his life. Yeah, it, it is interesting. All you, this is again, this is how Hebrew stories are told, right? Because it was a largely preliterate society. They weren't reading it in their wide margin ESV journaling Bibles. Uh, they were hearing this story read to them. Um, and so they're, you're right, Mark. There are all kinds of little clues in there, like the goat. You know, even uh, they use goat's blood to 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 confuse or or uh, make it look like Joseph's coat had had been eaten by a, an animal. So Jacob ends up being deceived by a goat in the same way that Jacob used a goat to deceive his father, Isaac, and then goats show up in the Judah story. All these little goat, it's, it, goat becomes almost like a dramatic function to clue us into, you know, there's something sinful or nefarious happening here. And uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's remarkable. And deceit, deceit is, this family is being cured mm -hmm. of deceit. 
a sin that goes all the way back to Abraham, the father, right? Yeah, so it's just that's an interesting point you make, Paul, because yeah. Paul, the apostle, tells the Corinthians, right, that he when he gives us this long list of Old Testament references, and he says, all these things were written for your remembrance, like to go back. And I think for our readers, as they're going through this uh, reading program and stuff like that, to put themselves, I'm, I'm reading a book right now about prayer, about how we appeal and we remember and we ponder, and it's to read the scripture and, and, and see the, the scripture as Mark was saying, it's a real event in Jacob's life, but put yourself there, like feel this and put yeah. yourself there so you can apply something to your life today. Cause an interesting thing you just brought up that I think as we're, as they're getting into the, the last part of Genesis with Joseph is here, we said that the Lord spent 20 odd years dealing patiently and yet bringing Jacob to a point of conversion. Yeah. Jacob's blessed. Now he has sons that are deceiving and conniving just like dad did. Yep. And, and so I think it's important for the reader in his everyday, especially the Christian reader in their everyday Christian life going, I was, I'm forgiven of God. My life's been restored. I've got the grace and mercy of God, but we still live in this world where sometimes there's still ongoing consequences for our behavior, which is why we're saved, but we're still being saved and we will be saved. You're yep. going to constantly cry out to God as you sometimes see, and I'm reminded of Chandler when he prayed a prayer there when he had cancer, and he said, Lord, may the sins of myself end with me and not spread on to the, my, my children. And I think for any of the men, the dads that are listening, this is why it's so important for us to learn these lessons and pray for not only forgiveness, but generational forgiveness. Yeah. I, I do wonder if Joseph or how many times Jacob sat and wondered, Lord, oh, forgive my children, heal them from this, yeah. you know, let this die with them. Yeah. Wage war on your sins or God, mm -hmm. God will. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Well said. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's move into Esther and Job. Uh, we got into that in our, in our other old Testament column this week. Um, Stephen, I'll provide a bit of an intro to, to mm. Job in just a minute, but, uh, this week we finished our walk through Esther and, <laughs> The end of that story is pretty remarkable. And I think for the first time Bible reader, maybe for the eighth time Bible reader, there's some shocking episodes in that. So help us understand that. Help us put that in context. Yeah. What's the enduring principle there? Well, you know, since I'm, I'm new here in the sense of this week, I, I just want to say, I think Esther might be my one of my favorite books of the entire Bible and would <laughs> yeah. definitely encourage people to read it over and over and over again. Because, you know, you have this book, which, again, actually is not a book without controversy, even within the canon of Scripture, because yeah. it's that one book that doesn't name the name of God. Not only that, you don't see references to prayer. or. Worship. I bet you Luther and Esther are sitting side by side right now <laughs> exactly. in the intermediate state. I believe that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. even in the modern era, when we think of... Um, <laughs> Mark, you, you weren't here last week, but uh, Rob mentioned that, that Luther wasn't sure if uh, Esther should be in the Old Testament. So I just think... I just think in the wisdom of God, that's how he so organized things. And is and he's not alone. I mean, the Essenes yeah. when they were writing out, they would they there was no no uh, uh, books of Esther in all of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Every other book of the Old Testament is there except Esther, yeah, because they seem to think with the absence of God, and yet God is everywhere in this. It, it is one of the premier books of the Bible to to see the unmitigated sovereignty of God. Yeah. Now, for the reader, as they get to those those amazing chapters when this all comes and Haman has been outed, Mordecai is elevated, but now you've got the problem back early in the book, right? In chapter three, chapter two and three, when Haman's already, you know, launched his plan to exterminate the Jews. 
And as one commentator read uh, this week when I was reading that, he said, imagine if it had happened. Yeah. Uh, you know, how much, how much the domino effect of the plan of God. And in fact, if your readers take a step back, this is the last recorded place where there's this actual organized attempt to annihilate Israel. Right. And yet, so again, for the, the culture, people need to realize when Xerxes makes this law that, that Haman has, has kind of, you know, tricked him into making, this is an irreversible law. Yeah, similar to what and, you see in Daniel. With right, the exactly, yeah. right? So yeah. if people watch modern pop culture when they watch the Ten Commandments, right? And and he says, so let it be written, so let it be done. Like This is the, the level of this stuff. And so um, the fact that Esther could then go and, and get them and, and Xerxes would say, okay, let's write another law and let's let Israel defend themselves. Yeah. And, and a passage that is often missed in that is when it actually, and of course, on the day he writes the law, said on this one day, you get to defend yourselves and you get this, these two days that, you know, what Haman, and again, I'm back to Genesis, what someone meant for evil, God is now going to bring in to good and preserve. And, 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 yet, and it's a clash of the, of the seed of the woman and the seed of the absolutely, serpent. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yet what I find amazing about how God works providentially, because as you begin Esther, you think all forces are against the Jews. Everything's against the Jews. And yet, a throwaway verse sometimes, and this is why there's no throwaway verses in your Bible. When this day comes and it says these people that raise up, it says all the governors and all the satraps and all sided with the Jews. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and interestingly, this is all in and they context. they feared the rise of Mordecai. Exactly. And it's all in, in, in the context of Nehemiah and Esther. Yeah. And you kind of wonder, is it any wonder then that Nehemiah did find favor of Artaxerxes, you know, and how this all works out and how God just providentially works. And again, into modern history, the Jews to this day celebrate Purim. Yeah. Almost, it's quite honestly, it's almost like Israel's Halloween. They dress up and they cheer if you're dressed up as Esther or Mordecai, and they literally hiss. Uh, effigies that are hung around the Israel that are made in, in the, in the, and they have like a, a modern thing here in Newfoundland. We still celebrate because we're close to England. What's called bonfire night, Guy Fox night. Okay. And yeah. they literally burn effigies in Israel to this day of Haman uh, celebrating the fact that God delivered them. And so yeah. here you have two instances just this week alone in Genesis. When this pandemic is coming is over. I'm coming out to the Island for Guy Fox day. That sounds awesome. Oh yeah. It is a, it is a wild time here, man. Cause they do that. But anyway, I just love these modern things. When, when we live in such a skeptical world where people and the Bible is always under attack. Yeah. And yet here are these things that are in our modern history ingrained in the cultures of entire nations and races that are from the word of God taken yeah. right out of God's word. Well, and the, the story of Haman is kind of like an illustration of all those proverbs, right? Like that mm. it, you fall into the pit, you dig for others, right? That's it. That's because that's literally exactly what happened to him. He 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 builds the uh, uh, the the what do you call it? The scaffolding, yeah. I should say, to to yeah. hang Mordecai, and he ends up being hung on it himself. And that's a reminder that that this is why we don't need to fret fret not yourself over evildoers, right? Because God's got this. He's working a long plan, and and uh, yeah, that's. Anyone else want to jump in on the on the Esther story that we finished? Yeah, I'll just for a second. There's a a, a deep parallel throughout the whole Esther story with uh, the story of Saul and the loss of Saul's kingdom, because uh, Mordecai yeah, is is the descendant of Saul, 
and Haman is the Agagite. Yeah. And what is the sin of Saul when, when the kingdom is torn away from him? God says to him, destroy the Amalekites and touch not the plunder. And what does Saul do? He spares Agag and takes all the plunder. Yeah. And so here it is thousands, well, thousands, hundreds of years later, yep. the, you read it in the story, they destroyed the enemy and touched not the plunder. Not the plunder Three times yeah. over, it says, they destroyed the enemies, they destroyed the Agagites, and they touched not the plunder. And it, I think it's intentional, this parallel between, you'll find it in 1 Samuel 15, yeah. um, and this later thing where finally Israel has come to the point where they say, we, we'll destroy the Amalekites, but we won't touch the plunder. Stephen, I think it was you, you a minute ago, you were talking about generational sins or si mm. things that we, if we leave a sin untouched in one generation, it's got to be dealt with in subsequent generations, right? Mm. Here's an illustration of that on a national right. scale, right? Okay. So Saul sinned, he failed, he took the, took the plunder and left uh, Agag. And then he, that sin has ripple effects multiple generations later down the road. Uh, as a result of that, there's this guy, Haman, who tries to uh, commit genocide against the Jewish people. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Well, I, uh, I want to take a minute and or introduce the, uh, the book of Job that we, we got into as we finished Esther, we moved into Job. Job is, I don't know if we're allowed to have favorite books, uh, of the old or new Testament, but, uh, if we are, then I'll say that Job is my favorite book of the old Testament. Uh, I love it. Uh, it is, however, arguably the most complicated book of the Old Testament for a first-time Bible reader, maybe alongside of Leviticus. It's the, it's the one you tend to need the most help with. Uh, it begins with two fairly straightforward prose chapters, narrative chapters. Uh, everybody, if, if you have any familiarity with Job as a sort of beginning Bible reader, it's probably from the first two chapters. Um, and so there's the story of what happens to Job. Then at the very end, it ends with a, a narrative chapter. But then in between, we have a very long back and forth uh, argument or conversation between Job and his friends. And uh, that's where a lot of the beauty is. That's where a lot of, of the glory is. But that's also where a lot of the confusion uh, can be found. Calvin loved this book. Uh, Calvin had a difficult life. So I, I think a, a really long conversation about suffering was right up his alley. Uh, suffering and providence, which are two of Calvin's uh, favorite themes. Calvin preached 159 sermons on the book of Job, which I just find fascinating. He also gave what I think is the best interpretive key uh, at the first of, of those 159 sermons. Here's the key to understanding those middle chapters. He says, we have also to note that in the whole dispute, Job maintains a good case and his adversary maintains a poor one. Now there is more that Job maintaining a good case pleads it poorly and the others bringing a poor case plead it well. When we shall have understood this, it will be to us, as it were, a key to open the whole book, closed quote. So Calvin says that Job makes a good case poorly, and his friends make a poor case well. What he means is that Job is fundamentally right. Job's fundamental point is that his suffering is not related to any particular sin. It's not as though he did X, and so God sent Y. Job is saying that that can't be it. However, he argues it poorly. He, he occasionally exaggerates his own innocence, and he occasionally exaggerates God's severity, and he occasionally just responds poorly to the, to the questions being posed to him. He's a little bit like a wild animal uh, that, that's injured. He's making a lot of noise and a lot of stink. Uh, but fundamentally, he is right. And fundamentally, his friends are wrong. They are convinced that, that Job's suffering must be related to Job's sin. They see that as 
not just a general rule. They see that as a universal principle. Suffering is always related to sin. You suffer, ergo, you have sinned. Now they're wrong. That's not what's happened. Uh, but they argue it really well. And they say a lot of really true things about the justice of God, the, the moral nature of the universe, human nature. They say some brilliant things, but they're wrong. And so that's complicated. You, you can't just take every verse you run across in Job that you like and stitch it onto a quilt. You might be literally stitching heresy on, onto your quilt. Uh, so it, it, Job is a book that rewards the careful reader. Um, but if, if you read it, I would say the first time you read Job, it's going to seem like a dog's breakfast to you. Um, but I would say the fifth time you read Job, it'll feel like the most brilliant thing you've ever read uh, in your entire life. Now, in terms of just a couple things to watch for as you make your way through Job, uh, I'll give you three things. Watch. I mean, there's so many of these things. Like I said, it's, it's a glorious book, but here's three things to watch for as you read. Watch for Job functioning as a necessary counterbalance to Proverbs. Um, by and large, I would say it's, it's dangerous to, to read a little bit of the wisdom literature in the Bible. It, there should almost be a rule. Like if you're going to read any of it, you better read all of it. Job functions as the counterbalance to, to Proverbs. I love how Tremper Longman III says it. He says, the message of both the book of Job and Ecclesiastes should keep people from reading the rewards of Proverbs with undue optimism. So Proverbs sets out all these general principles, right? Raise up a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he will not depart from it. Okay, but that doesn't always happen. And it's just a general rule. General, generally speaking, good godly parenting will, will generally result in, in good godly kids, but not always. And Ecclesiastes and Job kind of explore the not always. We do live in a broken world, right? It's a fallen world. So general principles are resisted. Uh, there's bad agents in the world. There's stuff going on. And, and so reading these things together is very helpful. In fact, I think you could to, to say it in street level terms, reading Job will keep you from turning Proverbs into a justification for prosperity gospel. Um, and that's, that's very helpful. Second thing to watch for, it serves as an aid to our contemplation of human suffering. Uh, the middle bulk, the bulk of Job is a really, really good conversation, broad, far-reaching uh, conversation about the nature, meaning, purpose of suffering. And part of what's really helpful is that often the things that Job's friends say are the things we tend to say to our friends who are suffering. And so we hear the friends say things and we go, oh no, I've said that so many times. But we know because we were let in on the first two chapters. We actually know what's happening. We saw the conversation between God and the devil. We know what's happening. And we realize, oh boy, we, we might have been just as wrong in the things we said to our friend. So it really does refine us in terms of our, our wisdom and pastoral care. And then third thing to watch for as you read through Job, watch for hints, anticipations, and advanced illustrations of the gospel of Jesus Christ. On at least two levels. First of all, Job is an innocent sufferer, at least to some extent. And so in that sense, he points us forward to Jesus, the ultimate uh, innocent sufferer. But, but then also throughout the dialogue, Job finally comes to the realization that in this broken world that's really complicated, with God being so, so holy, his only hope as a, as a sinful man trapped in a sinful world, his only hope is that there would be some kind of mediator who could argue his case before God. Oh, that there was a mediator. Oh, that, that I would see him. Oh, that I could make my case to him and he could make my case to God. And so Job's hope is in essence, Christian faith. 
Job is looking forward to what we look back on in faith, that Jesus is the mediator, that, that by his life and by his death, by his resurrection, by his present intercession, we have a mediator, one who stands between us and God. So watch for that as well. All right, panel, uh, what did I miss? And uh, what do you love about the book of Job? Not all at once. Was it was it that comprehensive? Did I go too long? No, I'm with you, Paul. I I mean, Job <laughs> Job ranks right up there with me. I I actually encourage my guys here at Mile One to try their best to read Job once a month. Oh. Um, I really do. I, I put the pastoral epistles up there in Job for guys that are going into ministry. Yeah. Um, and just say you need to do that. I love the now for me. I'll be honest. I love um, the whole friendship dynamic of Job and his buddies, and I think yeah. the buddies get a bad rap. Because I think you just put it very, very well. And I was really, really uh, neat to hear what Calvin said there and how he described how Joe, because I don't think these guys were just, you know, they're always portrayed as almost like they're knobs. They're like, they're not good friends, but they are yeah. friends. I think they, they don't travel up, sit for seven days in silence um, because they're not, they don't care for this guy. I think they're just, they're confused. They're going, yeah. they're, they're trying. And it's interesting because by the end of it, God tells Job, you need to pray for these, these guys. And he yeah. does. And God blesses both Job and his friends. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a lesson for us to see just in the power of friendship, even when we disagree. Yeah. Um, because I think that the four of them pulled stuff out and they all needed correction. Yeah. It wasn't just that the three guys were wrong, Jacob or Job himself. Cause that's my favorite part is when Job finally snaps, you know, Lord, if this was what it was, why even, why even create me? Yeah. And you would think then, right, there's a there, there, and Joe, God, you know, really, Job, you're going to question me. Well, I've got some questions for you. Yeah. And as our readers go through this, they're going to see that. And I love, I love how the book ends in, in, in 42 with Job's um, just as deepening understanding and appreciation of, of God and relationship and his sovereignty. And I think for us as, as Christians in a 21st century world with COVID and restrictions and everything else. I think this has shown us, we often talk about the sovereignty of God, like it's our boy scout badge, but then when you got to go live it, yeah, man, you got to, you know, and then the other thing, I love just the consistency of scripture, Genesis, Jacob, Joseph, all these things, you know, they yeah, make how you get the evil, prosperity God gospel, it for if, good. If you're reading these stories, I don't know, <laughs> yeah. right? Like everybody in these stories is, is suffering. And in every one of these stories, God is the cause of it. And, and you're like, okay, how, how do we get the prosperity gospel out of these stories? I will say, though, this is where I think we help our reader understand the difference between corrective discipline yeah. and formative discipline. Yeah. Because yeah. these are cases where God is forming, forming, transforming lives. It's not, and Job's a classic example. He's, Job knows he's going through a form of discipline, but it's not corrective discipline. It was formative discipline. At the it's beginning and the end, in him. all this, Job right. did not sin. Exactly. Yeah, and I think sin. we miss this. We always, in our world, in the West, we, we use the word discipline and we almost never see it positively. But think about Olympic athletes. They have to discipline themselves. And that's not negative. That's meant yeah. to make them a better athlete. Yeah. And God is in the business of transforming us into his image. And that's going to take a lot of formative discipline. Yeah. Good. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's move into the New Testament. And uh, we began reading the Gospel of Mark. Uh, this week. Pastor Stephen, uh, give us a two-minute introduction to the Gospel of Mark. I figure we probably don't need a, a huge one because it's not altogether dissimilar from the Gospel of Matthew, which we introduced <laughs> a couple of weeks ago. 
Right. Yeah. So it's, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke is part of those three synoptic gospels. And again, for our readers, if you're wondering why this where that $50 theological term comes from, it just means the idea of seeing together. And it's this term because Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of see things the same way. They, they kind of walk you through the life and ministry of Jesus in very similar ways, highlighting very similar things. Now, albeit from three very different perspectives. Mark is the shortest of the Gospels in, in the way we measure chapters. Um, Mark, in a word, is the, the Gospel of action. Jesus mm -hmm. is moving, going. Mark's favorite word is that word immediately. He loves to do that, and he transitions very quickly. I think some of this might be because, you know, sc scholars seem to be in some general agreement that his target audience was likely Roman, and uh, since many believe he wrote this from Rome, um, and so obviously the Romans were impressed by accomplishment. They, they, you know, it wasn't, you know, Matthew's more about pedigree and Luke is more about the son of man. Whereas Mark is, let me show you how God gets things done. And so you'll see this largely through here. It's not a gospel without some controversy in the sense of the ending of yep. this particular mm -hmm. gospel in Mark chapter 16. I don't know how much we'll get into that or not, but um, I just love the, the overall arching of it. Now, in regards to this theme that, you know, Mark brought out, one of my favorite parts about the book of Mark, because Mark is the one who's not an apostle. He's John Mark. Um, many people believe he probably got most of his information from Peter. Mm -hmm. And it is interesting. If you read Mark's gospel and then you take some time to read Acts chapter 10 with Peter's whole experience, you will find uncanny similarities with the way Mark charts out his gospel mm -hmm. and how Peter walks through this experience of the Gentiles coming in to the kingdom um with you know right from in acts chapter 10 36 good news mark begins with good news you know in 38 god the anointed uh, jesus of nazareth with the holy spirit then there's the, the the baptism of jesus in mark's gospel there's beginning in galilee whereas in mark he begins in galilee and this goes on and on right through 36 37 38 to all the way down through that that particular passage of peter so you get to see this influence peter had on mark but i will tell you if you're like me you're a bit of an extrovert you're action oriented um you're going to love this now for our readers you'll see a very distinct difference in matthew mark and luke from john yeah these three gospels are all about almost like the deeds the actions of jesus john is about the conversations of christ and that's one of the reasons you're going to see that distinctive but more than anything enjoy this book because it is a whirlwind of action yeah. Um, and just take note of how, what over and over again, Mark will say, Jesus set out to do something and he accomplished it. And if, if not for the controversy of, of Mark 16, the, the end yeah. issue, I'm sure that Mark would be the go-to gospel for new Christians to walk a, a, an inquirer through it, it is, yeah. it's a great brief introduction to the life and work of Jesus. Uh, before we move out of Mark, let's, uh, let's deal with one of Mark's, uh, major emphases, this, one of the ways that Mark organizes uh, his gospel is around initially around these five conflict stories. So mm -hmm. he's, he's showing the rupture between the Jesus movement and Judaism. So G Jesus initially begins as this sort of reforming voice within Judaism. The Pharisees are checking him out. There's some respectful dialogue, but then largely around uh, Jesus claim to authority over the Sabbath and some of the things that Jesus does on the Sabbath, there is a, there's a finally a formal rupture. So, 
Mark 2, 23 to 28. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. As they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Then in the very next couple of verses, the first couple of verses of chapter three, Mark three, uh, there's another Sabbath conflict. And then finally in Mark three, six, it says the Pharisees went out and held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So there's, there's the rupture. That's the moment when the Jesus movement ceases to be a reforming influence in Judaism, and it starts becoming mm. a whole new thing. So, Mark, uh, can you get us started with that? What was it about Jesus' approach to the Sabbath that so infuriated uh, the, the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders in general? What does this suggest about the relationship of Jesus to the law in general? What does this mean for us as Christians today as we try to think about the principle and maybe even uh, the, the law of the Sabbath? How does that all work? Yeah, if you want to get a really good fight going, especially in Reformed-ish community uh raise the sabbath um and and you'll get a you'll get a lot of different ideas and opinions and it's interesting in scripture the whole picture of sabbath uh it begins right at the very beginning and transforms as it moves through i mean at creation the seventh day the lord rested and he gives rest to mankind and there's that expectation listen this is the rhythm of life six days of labor and then rest and then in the days of Moses, it comes into the Ten Commandments as the Fourth Commandment and really becomes almost the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. It becomes one of the key markers of who the Jewish people are, this distinctive uh, ceasing from labor, but also that idea uh, entering in of, of a worshipful rest, right? And then uh, Jesus really kind of comes in as a corrective because the Pharisees have made... Um, drudgery out of what was meant to be delight they have created a burden that people loathe and dread i think um because of the way that they're practicing and jesus comes in and says you're doing this wrong uh god made uh the sabbath for man not man for the sabbath and the pharisees are really trying to press it the other way around um and then finally the final iteration of this in the book of hebrews you really see sabbath becoming the the final picture uh, of what heaven is going to be this this complete ceasing of labors and rest from that um but let me just tell two quick 30 second stories because i've been on a little bit of a journey with this um so the first story uh, an elderly man who was part of my congregation um told me that when he was a boy his father was the pastor of Walsh Baptist Church in 1915. This is how old this man was. And he said, every Sunday, he said, we had to put on our best Sunday clothes and we went to morning service and we went to evening service. And the entire period between those two, we were expected to sit on the couch and do nothing. You couldn't get down, you couldn't play, you couldn't laugh, you couldn't do anything because it was the Lord's day. And, and man, I mean, I, that, that is just the 
image of Pharisaism. Um, you know, the, I, I can't even imagine the drudgery that that would be. You would, your children would loathe it. They would hate Sundays. Uh, but then the other story, and we've all experienced this, is, you know, the summertime where you look around and you say to people in your church, hey, missed you last Sunday. They said, ah, oh, it's such a nice day. We took the whole day off church and went to the beach. Yeah. And yeah. somewhere between those two extremes, I, I think we, we find where we ought to live, that it is meant to be a day of worshipful rest, but it's meant to be a day of delight. I, I think worship is key. Uh, I, I never, ever, 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 ever take a vacation from worship. Occasionally, that means I cannot attend church because I'm somewhere so distant. When I was in Newfoundland, I was on some extremely distant little island, and I still found a church and went there with two other people, you know, because I think it's important that we make that a, a priority, that this is the day, it's the Lord's day, let us give the Lord the priority, but also this is a day where, where let's find delight in this day. I, I think it's a good day to play with your family, to enjoy the time with your family, to, if you like cooking, cook a big meal. Um, you know, if you like I get in trouble here, but if you like gardening in the summer, I think go out amongst the creation and, and get your hands dirty. I don't think that violates the Sabbath, and I don't think Jesus thought so either. Yeah, really good, Mark. Thanks for that introduction. I, it, it is interesting. I mean, I, it used to be that Sabbath was something you fought about with, you know, dear old ladies in your in your church when I was a kid, meaning you would bump up against some some older folks who grew up under that more rigid system who who were convinced that, um, you know, whether it was gardening or, or tossing the baseball around, what, whatever, you, you were really not to do anything on the Sabbath other than church. Um, however, you're right. The, as you said at the beginning, the conversation now is kind of a fight between theologians. Um, so let, let's just be as pastoral here, as useful as possible. Let's, let's not fight with theologians. Let's pastor people. It sounds like, I'm going to guess, and you guys correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like we're all saying, the Sabbath law is not enforced because the Sabbath law was the sign given uh, to the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant is not enforced, has, has passed away, was fulfilled in Christ. Therefore, the Sabbath, as an aspect of that, as law, is not enforced. However, you, Mark, you said the, the principle of Sabbath actually precedes the law. So, so there, is, there is a principle of rest and worship one day in seven that actually precedes the Mosaic Covenant. And, and so under Christ, who is the Lord of the Sabbath, who's the Lord of all the law, we expect there to be modification and now filled with the Holy Spirit in general, as Christians, our understanding, you know, based on Galatians 4, understanding is that we're no longer slaves to the law in any respect. Uh, we're operating now as, as mature sons, not servants under a tutor. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. We're able to operate with prudence. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to throw out what I think we're all saying, and then you, you correct me if I'm wrong. There's no Sabbath law that we need to be frightened of, but there is still a principle. Human beings haven't changed. The nature of human beings hasn't changed. One day in seven, we need rest. And one day in seven, we need retuning. We need worship, which is not to say we can't worship every other day. We should be worshiping every day. But there needs to be a dedicated day for, for worship and rest. And in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, we, we do that on the Lord's Day. We gather on, on Sunday uh, to remember the resurrection of the Lord because that changes everything. And that instituted the new creation. Uh, so now we have, a, we have a principle of Sabbath without a, a law of Sabbath. But in essence, the mature, prudent Christian is likely going to engage in 
most of the same activities as somebody who felt themselves to be under the law. You're, you're, you're going to be uh, prioritizing worship. You're going to be prioritizing rest. Is that a decent summary? Anybody mm -hmm. want to disagree with that? I, I love, I, I wrote, I wasn't sure whether we would all agree on that or not. So I, I wrote a great quote from Schreiner, uh, which I just found very helpful. Thomas R. Schreiner. He says this, Paul has no quarrel with those who desire to set aside the Sabbath as a special day, as long as they do not require it for salvation or insist that other believers agree with them. So that should end all the theologian fighting, but it doesn't. Uh, those who esteem the Sabbath as a special day are to be honored for their point of view and should not be despised or ridiculed. Others, however, consider every day to be the same. They do not think that any day is more special than another. Those who think this way are not to be judged as unspiritual. Indeed, there is no doubt that Paul held this opinion since he was strong in faith instead of weak. So Schreiner contends that the Apostle Paul did not consider there to be, you know, an, an obligatory day. Uh, he was not a Sabbatarian. He understood that the Sabbath was an aspect of the Mosaic law that had passed away. But he said, it's not something that we should fight over. If, if people want to establish a certain day and make that the day, fine. If they want to view every, every day uh, as equally special, great. Um, but this is not something we should, we should fight over. Although Paul Schreiner is saying was in the latter camp as opposed to the, to the former camp. Anyone want to disagree with that summary? No, I just would say go keeping in print in the, in the, the lane that you talked about of law versus principle and the idea of, you know, back in Genesis that Jesus, God himself rested on that seventh day. Yeah. It is amazing to me that the, that the book of Hebrews speaks of Sabbath rest as the ultimate uh, culmination of the gospel as we head towards that, which plays into Mark's whole thing with the two stories, the difference between law and delight. And so the idea of even for us as Christians, you know, the New Testament says they chose the first day of the week because that was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And, and I think rightfully so, maybe well-meaning Christians took a lot of the principles of the Sabbath, the idea of dedicating a day to the worship of the Lord, but we are just as guilty. So it's a great for our audience as you read scripture, see how easy it is to take gospel grace and mercy and responsive worship and turn it into legalism turn it into a set of confined principles that defined your spirituality. Whereas Hebrews is that to me, that, that great check break check there to say, listen, you always are looking towards that Sabbath rest where we're going to enter into the joy of our Lord um, once and for all. Every Sunday should be like a little foretaste of heaven, shouldn't it? And, yeah. and the, the ditch on the other side, we, we take, uh, um, we can turn things into legalism. We also have to be aware that we don't turn things into license. We yeah, don't absolutely. absolutely. And make license of it. And so when it comes to the law, and right now the Sabbath is the fourth, you know, the, the, the Ten Commandments are no longer, and I don't think they ever really were even in the Old Testament, the way into grace. Right. Um, but what should mark, what is, what is one of the evidences of the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? is is a person um you know the ten commandments amongst other things give us a reflection of of the nature of who god is and what god delights in if the thing i would want to guard against is is the church or the christian crumpling up the sabbath and yeah. completely throwing it away and saying that doesn't matter i mean all of those ten commandments if you look at your neighbor uh who knows nothing of the lord and cares nothing for the lord None of those commandments necessarily hold for them, but for the believer, 
every one of those things becomes something that I think should be reflected somehow in our lives. Yeah, I, Calvin des- described the entire Mosaic Covenant, right, the, and the ceremonial law in particular, as a tutelage, right? So it's intended to teach us. So it's not as though as soon as we become mature, to use the Galatians 4 language, we chuck it and, and start living contrary to all of our education and tutelage. No, no, we're capable now simply of acting with discernment. We're not under the power of the law, but we're still extraordinarily respectful of the lessons that it has taught us. It's taught us that we need rest and that we need worship. And if we don't have those things, we fall apart. Uh, so a wise person, well-taught, filled with the Holy Spirit, is going to attend to that lesson for the remainder of his or her life, I would think. Yeah, well said. Here, let me just throw out a quick question, only because I get asked this all the time, and I'd love for people to hear, hear the answer from you. Suppose I'm a single mom, and, uh, and the only job I can get is working as a waitress. And, uh, and I have to be at Swiss Chalet at um, 9.30 to, to, op- to help open so that we can be ready to rock by 11 o'clock. Am I a sinner? Am I, am I not able to, to be a mature Christian? How is that? Help me out here. Go ahead, Mark. I, I'm ready to jump in. I just feel like I've been monopolizing conversations. So, um, you know, I, I, I say to people in that situation, um, when you read the New Testament, the vast majority of the first generation of believers were slaves. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. I mean, they, they had to edge out whatever time they could get. Uh, I, I think it's an ideal, and I, I think it should be an ideal that the Sunday, the Lord's Day, is first and foremost about the Lord. Uh, but I think we have to take into account the fact that there are people in situations where they don't have a choice. Where I think we have a, a difficulty is when the person starts to have a choice, but say, I, I choose to um, take as many overtime shifts as I can get because I, I want that income. Uh, I, I would counsel the woman to say, no, that if that's the only job you can get uh, and you're required by your employer to work on Sunday, the Lord understands that. Yeah. But if you have opportunity to get off that shift or to find another job, it would be better for you if you could so that you could set this time aside. Yeah, well said. And I I think there's some culpability on the the part of the church, if I can uh, throw in here. Uh, This morning in our preaching workshop, one of the brothers that was at the preaching workshop has a PhD in in church history. So he he always throws in these interesting little nuggets. And um, he mentioned that John Chrysostom, who was a preacher in the early church, uh, held 11 services per week. And, and so you, you just look at that and you think that's part of the problem too, isn't it? I mean, we have so over-prioritized Sunday morning and I, I don't mean that it shouldn't be a priority. I just mean we for a lot of us, we've turned Christianity into a, you know, a four hour or, th- or two hour or 65 minute uh, per week experience. And if you're a single mom and, and the only job you can get is a waitress and you can't be there for those 65 minutes, it almost makes it sound like you can't be a Christian. Well, some of that's on us. Um, I don't imagine that came up in John Chrysostom's church, right? If there were 11 services a week, uh, the single mom working at Swiss Chalet could find one, I'm sure, that she could go to. And so maybe some of this, some of this is on us. Uh, all right, moving forward into the New Testament or, or into our second New Testament column this week. Uh, Pastor Jody, we, uh, we started reading Romans. Uh, we've been reading it all week. We have had seven chapters in Romans, so uh, we're probably past due for an introduction. But nevertheless, mm-hmm. I wonder if you could give us a three-minute introduction to Romans, which I understand shouldn't be much of a problem for you. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones no. spent 13 years preaching through yeah. Romans, so Dr. Jody Cross should be able to bang this out in three minutes, I'm sure. <laughs> Go ahead, brother. 
There we go. <laughs> speed, speed reading. Here we go. <laughs> so we have 16 chapters from the Apostle Paul, uh, written about uh, AD 57. And uh, Romans breaks up into two sections, the, the doctrinal portions, chapters 1 to 11, and the ethical uh, chapters, 12 to 16. Um, he had not been to Rome, but he was planning to go there and actually use it as a, a base for continued mission work. Uh, he was hoping to go to Spain. Nero was the emperor. And, uh, you know, in the day, Rome was like the New York, uh, Paris, London, all rolled into one. It was this major, major hub of, of civilization. And uh, Paul recognized that as a, as a base for the gospel. So Romans is epic in terms of its sweep of theological uh, expression. And um, it's obviously one of Paul's most systematic letters in terms of uh, the theology that he uh, presents. Um, obviously, it's about the gospel of Jesus Christ, what he has done, and um, speaking. Uh, obviously, there was issues in terms of things that were he was addressing. Um, a lot of emphasis on doctrine, obviously, sin, salvation, grace, redemption, justification, resurrection. And um, we see in uh, Romans 15, 24, that because he was going to go to Spain, he was uh, trying to rally the church and introduce himself. He also, um, in presenting the gospel, um, was just talking, obviously, about the issue between Jew and Gentile. And um, the, the Roman church was mostly Gentile, but obviously had some Jewish Christians as well. And then he was answering specific doctrinal questions, ethical questions for them. How does law relate to faith? Some of the things that we've been talking about. How does gospel ministry, um, how does the gospel to Gentiles affect the way uh, Jews understand it? And what unites them, what divides them? So the, um, obviously there are lots of verses we love in Romans. The mm -hmm. Romans road, as many people will know, are in there. And um, we obviously love the fact of uh, Romans chapter eight is this, this great chapter. I know John Piper says, if you're going to memorize a chapter of scripture, that's what you want to do. And uh, maybe one of the key ideas is in 117, the, uh, the broad theme for the book is the righteousness from God has been revealed. And it's the power of the gospel, the gospel that's presented in these first 11 chapters, the gospel that's by faith in Christ. Um, so I would end with the fact that, um, you know, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And uh, this is a great verse in Romans uh, 6.23, and are justified by his grace as a gift. Amen. Amen. Yeah, Romans, uh, you know, we could do an entire podcast on Romans and just go through, you know, chapter one, chapter two uh, with each episode. It's, it's just amazing. It is. It's rich. It's dense. Um, you know, many of our listeners will know I'm, I'm slowly but surely podcasting my way through the entire Bible. In my schedule that I've worked out in my mind, I'm leaving Romans to the very end. Uh, for the simple reason that I, I think it to speak usefully about Romans, you probably have to be at the absolute height of your spiritual and, and personal maturity. And, uh, and it's probably the book of the Bible that requires you to know the most about the rest of the Bible uh, in order to make good sense of. So it's, uh, it's absolutely marvelous, uh, wonderfully dense. I want to get into one thing that our readers may have encountered this week that may have caused them some trouble. Uh, in Romans 2, 6 to 11, it does kind of sound like the Apostle Paul is, is teaching some kind of works-based salvation. I mean, we know, what, we know he's not. Uh, when you read the whole book, it's very clear that that's what he's trying not to do. But it sounds like he is in Romans 2, 6 to 11. He says, he, God, will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. 
There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. So what is Paul saying there? Is he saying that, that salvation by works? Uh, is something else going on here? I'll just throw that out to the panel of Romans experts in general. Let me, let me just say as a starting that um, the balance to that is in chapter three. Um, we are all under sin, both Jew and Gentile. It says, what, what then are, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. No, none is righteous. No, not one. So obviously this is, this is not, he's saying there's, this is an impossibility anyway. You know, no one is going to be counted righteous by their works because we all fall, fall short of it. And that's what he's going to be saying later. All right. That's good. Anyone else want to pop in on that? Yeah. Um, I, I think as you're, as you're quilting up your COVID quilt filled with uh, passages, you shouldn't just. Most, mostly drawn from Job, but also a few right, from Romans. Right next to the, the panel on Bildad, the shoe height, you know, should be a panel of things torn out of their context. And if this verse existed all by itself, it would lead you down the wrong path. But because of where it exists, it, it, it talks about the end uh, and not the means. And the rest of the book of Romans is going to talk about the means. How does a person come to be found righteous so that our works are right. found right and good? And the only righteousness that will be found right and good is the alien righteousness that is received by grace and through faith through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is going to flesh that out. Yeah. But I, I think that passage is saying, listen, this is the, the final evidence is, is that this person is found righteous and this person is found wicked, but it's not based on, on our effort. It's based on faith. Yeah. And again, Paul, you, you've said this, and let me just say this for people that have, you know, the, the income to do it and, and are curious, I would say some of this stuff and this confusion is you is because we have chapters and verses. Yeah. And yeah. if you can invest in a reader's Bible that just gives it all to you without the chapters and verses, you will find, I think, that the, the first time reader probably doesn't stumble down that road because they realize that Paul is still finishing off the thought of this is the, the plight of humanity. And then those of you to try to justify yourselves, right, because he'd been therefore thou art without excuse. And he, he almost rhetorically draws out the conclusion, if, if you want to go down this road, this is where you end up. And then he turns the page as we come into chapter three, which yeah. is no, let me show There's you. There's none righteous, this. not right. one. <laughs> exactly, right? So yeah. I sometimes think the chapters and verses lead us potentially down paths that we wouldn't go down if those chapters and verses weren't there. Yeah, well said. Uh, Douglas Moo, I, I would say his commentary is generally recognized to be, uh, you know, the best commentary, the standard commentary on on Romans for those who are interested in building a library on this book. Um, he does a fantastic job of demonstrating what Paul's point is here. So he, he shows the chiastic structure for those of you uh, who've been to seminary, you know what chiasm is for those of you who don't, it just means it's a, it's an interesting way that, that a Jewish mind typically uh, indicates emphasis, what he's, what he's focusing on in it for the English user. We, we typically build up. So the last thing we say is the most important. So I say, a plus B plus C to get you focused on D or, or whatever comes after my equal sign, but that's not how the Jewish mind works. Usually when, when Jews make an argument, either the first and the last thing together are the point meaning. So they say a B and then a again, 
or it's what is in the center if it's a b b a uh in in this case uh moo makes the argument that that the brackets the bookends tell us what the main point is here so in verse six paul says god will judge everyone equitably then in verse 11 god says that again that's the other bookend god judges impartially and then in between there's this other stuff where he says, those who do good will attain eternal life, verse 7. Those who do evil will suffer wrath. Wrath for those who do evil, verse 9. Glory for those who do good, verse 10. But then again, verse 11, God judges impartially. So he goes on to comment, unlike some chiastically structured paragraphs, the main point of verses 6 to 11 occurs not at the center, but at the beginning and the end. God will judge every person impartially. And then F.F. Bruce says the same thing. He skips the chiasm and just says, Paul is not teaching salvation by works here, but emphasizing God's impartiality as between Jew and Gentile. That's the main point. Mm -hmm. And Paul doesn't say what it is to do good. He doesn't say anything about that, Mark. You were talking, there's, there's no content here. We assume Paul would agree with Jesus in John 6, 29. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Uh, but the emphasis here is not on how, how you get saved. The emphasis here, or what, what's good, the emphasis here is on the fact that God judges impartially. I even wonder, Paul, too, could yeah. you say that, that Paul is making the point, God is 100% fair without partiality. And when we get that, we all lose, unless yeah, he sends yeah. his son yes. to do for us what we don't deserve yeah. so we can receive this glorious gift. Yeah, I mean, there's two ways, you know, well, there's a bunch of ways, but I mean, the two main ways to make sense of a, of a text are, you know, context, the immediate context. So what's this paragraph? What's happening here? And, and that's the sort of analyzing by chiasm, but then pulling out, zooming out, what's the context of the flow of the argument? And you're right. That's where the rhetorical force that, that Paul is bringing to bear here really helps. Which again, that rhetorical question comes up over and over and over again. Yeah. 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 At the end of this argument, he's going to say, basically, everybody's mouth has better be shut at this point. He literally says that God has this whole process is about shutting your mouth so that you're ready to boast in the Lord, boast right. in what God has done. So, yeah, that's. The and don't look now. Isn't that the end of Job? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Job that's boast. exactly right. Shut your shut your mouth. Right. Like I've, I've walked you through something now. <laughs> Glory in the Lord. Yeah. 100%. Amen. Good, good, good. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Uh, we'll be back next week on February 11th to walk you through the next seven chapters in the RMM Bible reading plan. Uh, but before we sign off, uh, Brother Mark, uh, since you're, you've been away from us for a little while and you're back, I wonder if you could pray for us, pray for our listeners, and pray for our leaders as they continue to manage this pandemic due to COVID-19. Would you be able to do that for us, Brother? Sure. Thanks. Father, uh, we are grateful for the technologies we have and the ability to visit with one another, discuss, debate these things, uh, Lord, far from one another. And Lord, the ability that uh, people have to hear this conversation and be benefited by it. And Lord, we pray they would be benefited by it. Uh, Father, in the midst of this time, we pray that you would give wisdom to us as pastors and leaders to know best how to lead our congregations and care for them, teach and feed them. Father, that uh, our, our people would be, would be patient, Lord, and, and uh, trust, Lord, in your sovereignty in the midst of all of these things. And Lord, we do pray, pray for our leaders. Lord, we know that they've been given uh, a very difficult time to lead in. We pray that you would give to them wisdom and that you would uh, help us, Lord, to, to rightly understand what it is to, to be in obedience to the governor 
government over us, Lord, all these things we ask. And uh, we give you thanks for your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So good to be with you again. Thank you, uh, panel. Thanks for being with us. Uh, we'll be willing, or God willing, we'll be right back here uh, Thursday, February 11th for another episode of Going Deeper with the fabulous Into the Word panel. So we'll see you then. God bless you.